Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's a conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends all around the world. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. Some call me Alex, and I am joined this week by my good Keyforge chum, my pal, my coach. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey, what's going on, man? And another first-time guest to Help from Future Self, you know him from United Archons, one of the hardest working people in Keyforge. It's Jupiter. What's happening, Jupiter? Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. It's been it's a nice uh nice to be on the other side of not having to edit this when we're done. So it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Blake's job. Um <laughs> I hope that folks will not be disappointed or dismayed by what our topic of conversation is today, because uh it's going to be about a very specific house that uh, people have probably surmised already. We're going to be talking about House Dis and its various incarnations over the course of the game. It's always been, in my opinion, one of the top houses through each set, um, very much so uh, in the Coda era, very much so in the current era. We've all got stuff to say about the individual sets, but uh, I'm, I'm just super excited to get into this conversation. Um, let me ask you a question to start things off, Jupiter. Um, mm-hmm. When you first started playing Keyforge, what was your perception of Dis? What was their role in the game to you? Well, House Dis is how I pronounce it because of the uh, the actual meaning of I think of where they took it from. But um, it's actually the god of the underworld, aka Pluto, like in the uh, pantheon. And being mm-hmm. Jupiter, of course, I, do- I, do- I dove onto that side of it. But um, th- as far as the power level of, of House Dis, I always thought it was them and Shadows like very close. And I always tipped towards Dis because they did more things that I. I appreciated as far as like my style of gameplay, mm-hmm. um, and we can get into that like when we actually talk. But it has some of the best cards in the game that still like stand the test of time um, today. So I'm, I've always been a fan of Dees. If you look at United Archons colors, they are Dees colors because most of the people uh, on the team are pretty big fans of, of the house. That was definitely the reason why I thought we need to have Jupiter on for this for this uh, reflection of. Uh, houses gone past what about yourself blake what was your initial impression of the good folks in house dis or dis depending on how you pronounce it well the funny thing is is my very first deck i opened had it and the very first deck i used in a seal tournament which i won also had it so i have nothing but fond memories when looking back on it and i have to say that house dis is um one of my favorites in Worlds Collide, I have to say. Like it was obviously always known for for the greatness that it possessed in Call of the Archons. Uh, in AOA, I felt like it still provided some goods, but it took a little bit of a pivot. And then now with Worlds Collide, I've been really invigorated with it in uh, in my decks. I really like the things that it it does, and uh, I'm super excited to jam any deck that has it. Yeah, I, I feel very similarly. A big fan of Dis in its very first incarnation from Coda and pretty much in every set going forward. I think they've always offered a lot of interesting possibilities and some truly just like absolute bastard cards um, that you hate to have played against you but love to play against other people. They have to be like, like them and Shadows are at the top of the heap when it comes to just like, you know, absolutely crippling cards, but there's something very specific in the in the identity of the house, that control aspect that I find just like so both infuriating and invigorating uh, in, in equal measures, depending on which side of it I'm on. Uh, Jupiter, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about the House Dees uh, as it pertains to Coda and what their role was and how they played in that era. 
in the Coda era, I believe that House Dees was just one of the monsters, right? Because like when you have a first set, usually you're going to have kind of an unbalanced set because they want you to be hooked on the game. And um, I believe that the House Dees set the tone for um, the kind of house that they were going to be with all the disruption and like good combos that you still see some of today. And some of the best cards like ever printed are in Dees, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have Control of the Week, which is arguably the best card ever printed. Um, you have Poltergeist, which was like the best anti like anti artifact removal. You have Screaming Cave, which was arguably one of the best like engines for moving um, your deck. Um, you had combos like the Key Hammer, uh, Lash of Broken Dreams, which at the time was was pretty strong. Kind of lost a little bit of strength over the course of um, some of the new sets. But then Hysteria used to not be as good, but now it's like one of the best cards like printed. And, you know, it basically found a resurrection. It basically came up in power. Um, you had the Arise Gateway to Deese, which I still think is the best power combo in the game um, as far as taking over, especially when you pair that with things like Terror, Drumble um, combo, or the Schulers coming back, or, you know, the, the just the Drumble or Ember Imp lockdown. And um, have a just, Life Ward on top of it. So they yeah, kind of then you have Life Ward, <laughs> yep, and then yeah. Shaffles and Aristoguntus. Rest- I mean, like, the house just does everything. Like, if you have a way that you want to just mess with your opponent's head, like, Deese had that in Coda. Mm-hmm. Very much agreed. I, I think one of the things that you bring up is that it just has that 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 oppressive control, and it's control that goes across every single aspect of the game, right? Like it's amber control in the form of being able to like raise key costs, the original raise key cost house, uh, being able to capture it with uh, the charrettes and the drumble and so on and so forth, being able to prevent your opponent from playing key or playing cards with ember imp, um, board control in the form of like the board clears and the hysterias, making it so people can't drop cards on the table. Like it is just the most controlly house in Coda. And that's what I was sort of saying earlier with just that feeling of frustration when playing against it yeah you definitely put the tempo in your court when you play dees especially coda dees like um where you're making your opponent react to everything you do and then when they find a reaction you had like the mechanics that let you bring their momentum to a grinding halt and just reverse it all right back to where they started from like they rise that's why i say arise gateway to dees was always is probably always going to be my favorite combo ever in the game and then when we, like when Blake was saying you followed up with life wars on the table or um a control of the week like you know, screaming cave like you could just end the game without ending the game like amber is not the, the you can win without amber with the house dees it's also the the only house that you can literally have the game over by playing one card and that's with a restaurant guntis like it's possible you play restaurant guntis like even like you said after a board clear turns out the house you called they have only that house in their hand and therefore it's over and they, there's literally nothing more that can be done and i think that's a very interesting thing that exists with that house because it's the only one where the game finishes before actually finishing yeah there's a lot of different soft locks and stuff that these pulls mm-hmm. off. If you look at a lot of the best decks that were early on winning vault tours, they had two very common trends of shadows and Deese because the two together were just completely oppressive before the game kind of changed its mind and uh, worlds collide and how the, you know, the tournament games are played. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much. So let me ask you this, Jupiter. Um, you've been playing the game for quite some time now and you remember sort of just the, the general feeling around the, in the code era pre AOA. And at that time it was very, very like obvious that people were just like frustrated by a lot of things in shadows. And obviously they, 
probably felt very similarly about a lot of the cards in in Dees, but I also feel like they never got the hate that Shadows got, despite the fact that I think that they were arguably like, I don't want to say a stronger house, but on par with Shadows. Like, I think they were a sort of 1A, 1B kind of houses. Is there something specific to the identity of Dis and the way that it's played that you think sort of makes it less frustrating than the feeling of, of, of sort of having like a bait and switch or something like that played on you? Yeah, I, th I believe it had to do very um, directly with the idea that Dees doesn't really like take Amber from you and add it back to your pool. They would capture Amber and they would re like they would position Amber and move Amber and slow the game down and bring the game to a, a thing. So your opponent always feels in that circumstance psychologically, your opponent always feels like they still have a chance to get that Amber back or they mm -hmm. have a chance to play and basically make plays without, you know, anything else. Whereas with shadows that you're directly taking their win condition and putting it into your win condition. So that just seems like mentally that, that that's just more fatiguing, I think to people than the actual manipulation, even though they both did very similar, like hateful things. And like now in the world's collide era of tournament play, you see more of why Dees is strong because you don't have to worry about just building Amber now. Like you have like lots of different mechanisms that help you cheat keys and do things like that. So mm -hmm. that would be, that would be, that would be my idea. Mm -hmm. uh, before we start talking about AOA, is there a specific Coda era card that you you like love and are fascinated by? It could be an obvious one, could be kind of an under the radar one. Anything that stick out in your mind? Like when I wrote my list, I wrote like thirty cards down without even looking. <laughs> like I was just thinking, I was like so easy. But uh, my favorite card always will be Control of the Week. I think the game, the card in multiples is just absolutely broken. It gives you a lot of like control over how your opponent plays and basically changes their turns and it was one of the first cards that i ever played in um keyforge that was across the table like i was in my opponent's hand um and i think that's what makes the game better for me very cool so moving on to talking about aoa blake what are your thoughts on sort of the transition from call of the archons to the age of ascension dis what was so different about this uh the dis layout and, and what are sort of the things that you notice in contrast between the two? I think there's, without a doubt, it had, they took it backwards. Like they decided that there is a nerf that need to happen to the house as a general. Like there were still some amazing things that came out of it, but you could really see they're like, okay, this was a little too aggressive. We need to pull this back. And some of the ways of looking at this is things like street came, which is um, the form of succubus that made it so that, you now have to have a condition in order for it to to take effect. And they tapered that with putting it as elusive so you couldn't fight into it as easily, but then making it have one less power. So you still had the the possibility of refilling your hand to one less card, but there was a condition attached to it. And then you have also something like Tesmol, which was a version of Restringuntis, except you could use it over and over again, but it required an activation again. So there's that. And then lastly was uh, getting rid of Gateway to Dis and then bringing in Unlock Gateway, which basically made it so that it was how you ended your turn and you both had the same kind of board state, provided you could still do a life ward play with that. But it it was basically a nerf version of those original cards. And and that's what happened. And you also got, I feel like in, in AOA, a lot of cards that you don't really care about a lot. Like they exist in your decks and you're kind of like, oh, well, that's here, like whatever. Uh, big ones are the imps, I feel like. Like Ember Imp, Bloodshard Imp, I feel like has a little bit more utility within house disc if you want to like get rid of some of your own cards and you can also use it uh, on itself but i just thought that a lot of the imps just clogged 
clogged up your deck list and you weren't really excited to see them. Like Ember Imp, I think, feels a little bit better in a Worlds Collide era because of all the reaping abilities that exist and stuff like that. But still, it's not something that you're overly like, whoa, I'm super glad I got this card in my list. Um, and that brings me, speaking of the imps, is the key imps. And I'm curious, like, what are your gents' thoughts on the key imps? Jupiter, why don't you kick us off? All right, so my thoughts on the key imps were that they were interesting tempo plays, um, and in the right decks, they're, they could be absolutely fatal. Like, um, if you get to a key quickly, like if you're in some kind of, like, this undamed kind of rush deck or something in AOA, and uh, you get to your first key in, in an in a expeditious manner, and you drop that bronze key imp down... Um, like it could be really game changing. It's almost like on the level of playing like Restrictor Gunthus and not having an add to it. And let's not forget that you still had Restrictor Gunthus and Life Ward, and you still had mm-hmm. like all the cards, like all the like somewhat oppressive cards that weren't busted. But uh, like we we've had this talk before between you and me, where like we we know that basically a lot of the a lot of the going forward in the era of Keyforge is going to be adjusting cards to be what they should be, right? Like they should be proper. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're never going to give us a rise again, right? But they will give us like um the too many card whatever that, that card was the not done with you yet i think no yeah not finished with you yeah not finished with you yeah that's that one like where it's like this is kind of like a really bad arise right like but mm-hmm. it, it's more fair it's more in line with the way they want the game to be played and stuff and i think a, that's why aoa got a lot of down slack was because like in the house Dece is a very good example of like the way they tuned down Dece, but Dece was still doing great things. You still had exhumes and you still had yes. some of the, some of the uh, imps and you still had key of death, key to this, which gave you that instant uh, bomb, but you had to telegraph that it was coming, right. Instead of just dropping yeah. gateway to Dece or you had the untelegraphed bomb, but it cost you the end of your turn because that's the real magic of a rise. Like gateway to Dece was that I could just wipe the board and then just play everything back. Like, you know, that was huge. But um, I think the, like AOA, like a lot of people give it a bad rep, but in reality, like what they were doing was they were tweaking their game to be a more fair and balanced game, so that people didn't mm-hmm. feel as destroyed um, as they did with Coda, because Coda it was a very unbalanced, not unbalanced, but all the cards did super. It's like playing Superman versus Superman. It, like it was crazy, and like when they brought it down to Batman level, like people were mad because they're not playing God mode anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you, you said it right. I mean, we did see some amazing cards that, that are, you're just like, wow, that's amazing that, that exists now. And I think you're right. Exhum was probably without a doubt, like one of the best, if the best card that came out of AOA, in my opinion. Well, I guess Martian Generosity is, is going to be giving it a run for its money, but I think Exhum we're going to see regularly moving forward in house disc because it's such a great utility. It does a fantastic thing. It's, it's like a version of a rise, but only one creature and it goes right on the battlefield. So there's no like house necessary, like calling for it. So I think that's going to take a, a cool called aspect. shot and say that shadow of disc will be back and it will be yeah. very good. Yeah. Shadow of Death is on my list here. It's, it's, it's really good. And I, you know, a card I think is really interesting that they created and never really saw a lot was Ortanu. I thought that was such an interesting card, like from a design perspective mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. it did. And, and it created that chase element. So it's like as a collector, you have that fun side to it. And I just noticed that it it never appears in highly rated decks and maybe for obvious reasons, because there's three slots being taken up. But there's a lot of ways you can use that to really punish um, your opponent and do really cool things with it. I think it works really well in a warded dino era as well, having Ortanu. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, um, I, I love your Superman-Batman metaphor, Jupiter, because 
Batman wins because Batman plans ahead. And that's where I feel they want to take the game with AOA. It's like, all right, it's not just enough to just drop card bombs one after the other after the other. There's a lot more sort of like intricacy to the set. And I think that people didn't like it exactly for the reasons you said. You go from being, you know, super overpowered in most cases to having to really think about what these plays mean and how they interact and how the cards interact. And, you know, they, they also, you know, they're, they're, let's, let's, not, let's not get it twisted. There was a lot of boring decks in AOA, which I think also led to the sort of perception of it being not as fun a set as Coda. But uh, now, like, with the benefit of history, and now that we know what to look for in AOA decks, I love playing AOA discs. Like, there's so many good, fun little plays you can get out of it. Um, quick one thing I wanted to, to, to mention here. Man, a lot of really good Coda-era artifacts come through uh, to AOA. Like, if you look mm -hmm. at it, Soul Snatcher, yep. Lash of Broken Dreams, Library of the Damned, Life Ward, Key to Disc, like, they're all there in AOA, and, and they're all amazingly good artifacts. Like, Lash of Broken Dreams, despite the fact that it's a bit of a noob trap when you first start playing the game, is still one of those ones that can just be so crippling if you get it at the right time and have the right, like, sort of layout on the board to make use of it. And they, they keep reprinting Collar of Subordination, too, which is probably one of the best upgrades in the game. Oh, it, yeah. It, it does a lot to just destroy people, so... I'll so... There's, there's two other cards I just wanted to finish off for AOA, and uh, the first one is Anguish, because I think that is a, a really interesting uh, kind of key cost control, and and I think it was like, I don't know if it was like a test, because there there wasn't a ton, and this one really created a scaling um, kind of situation where it became more vulnerable, but your keys also became more expensive as a result, and and it was just such an interesting way, Like, and there were so many cards that you could just kind of do little pings on it to create that key cost increase against your opponent with anguish. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love that card. I think it's it was one of the greatest things to come out as well because I just think it creates a lot of interesting um, propositions within the game for taking your opponent off check in a way that is actually very common now within Worlds Collide. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, 100% agree. And then the last thing I want to talk about is what are your thoughts on the Yerks? Because <laughs> I, I personally, I love the Yerks. They, they are the way that... I think AOA filtered cards for Dece, like um, to get away from some of the broken stuff like Screaming Cave and stuff like that. They came up with a way to make it a little bit more clever in how you can cycle your cards to basically get value out of them. And then it made you pay more attention to that graveyard uh, philosophy of, of like bringing things back from the graveyard um, and kind of made graveyard type decks a feasible thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Alex, Absolutely. what about you? Um, I, I think that uh, some Yerks is good, too much Yerks can be a problem. Um, I have a couple of decks that have a lot of ancient Yerks in them, like two ancient Yerks. And if you get them both in hand at the same time, it's like, what? It's really <laughs> frustrating. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I think I'm a bigger fan of, of the old Yerk and maybe like one just regular Yerk as a good card cycling way to go about it. But uh, too many Yerks, I think you end up with, with uh, having to discard cards that otherwise might have been a value to you. Or you have to discard the Yerk, and then it's a dead draw, which is no fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it for the cycling factor. When I like, I felt the same way originally, and I had a deck that had all three. I think it had all three or two, two old and one ancient, and I and I just found that once you realize to not hold on to it because you know you're going to cycle faster as a result, you kind of just get over it. But you're right; if you get them in like multiples in your hand, it makes it a little bit more tricky because you have less control over what you're going to keep or not. And I, I think when you have exhumes in your deck, the Yerks become infinitely more powerful. 
Mm-hmm. Agreed. Moving on to Worlds Collide Disc, one of the absolute top houses in Worlds Collide. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> that before we talk about anything else, we have to talk about Infernus because Infernus is one of the most game-changing cards in terms of what you have to look out for as a player. Um, what Infernus does is it punishes you for playing cards with heavy amber on them, but not just punishes your opponent. You can even use Infernus to empty your own cards, purge them out of the game, thin your deck, and punish your opponent for doing that. And Infernus is a card at common and a card that, because of Dis's card set, is incredibly easy to recur. You've got Hysteria, which allows you to play Infernus multiple times in the same turn. Multiple Infernuses in the same turn. Uh, you've got Exhumed to bring Infernus back from the dead and back onto the table and so on and so forth. Like, it is absolutely ridiculous when you stop to think about just how many competitive decks that you see in common play that make great use of Infernus and how punishing that Infernus can be and that there isn't really great ways to get around it because what are you going to do? Not play cards that give you Amber? You have to kind of just accept the fact that Infernus is there and then if there's a way to maybe purge it out of the game or otherwise keep your opponent from playing it, let's say you yourself are playing disc, you get a Life Ward or have some other way of stopping it from happening, Quixelstone, I don't know. Those are the things that you kind of have to think about. It's a real change the way you think about the way the game is being played kind of card. Any thoughts about Infernus? Well, I just have one one uh, thought I'm wondering is, so this past weekend, uh, Dan and I, we commentated on the Glorious Few uh, Sanctimonious Tournament, and we kind of took a route where we just followed Lady Aurora on her path with her deck, which was a Martian Generosity Key Abduction deck. We got to a point where it went against a deck that had Infernus. Uh, I think it was actually Nathan who ended up winning the tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, congrats to Nathan from Tabletop Royale. Uh, great showing there. And um, so basically, when we saw the Infernus and the Martian Generosity, it's like it makes you wonder. Like it was part of the consideration of this is because it literally gets rid of the Genka decks. Like Infernus is an answer to a Genka deck. What do you guys think of that? Do you think there was any consideration in the creation of this card with like regards to how popular that combo is? Jupiter, I know you're a Genka guy, so why don't you lead this off? I, I think Infernus is absolutely a counter to Martian Generosity because the value of Martian Generosity uninterrupted is ginormous. And a lot of people don't know how to play against Martian Generosity, mm-hmm. but there's like two things you can do. You can get rid of the pieces or you can just deny them mana. Um, and that's like, that's pretty much the only way, two ways you could do things. And before we had Infernus, there wasn't really a lot of great ways to do that. Yeah, very yeah. true. Um, I think it goes beyond just uh, Genka as a thing that it was to counter. Any mm-hmm. deck that relies on sort of recurring a specific piece um, in order to, to screw you, like we saw those early Nepenthe Seed decks where they would bring certain things back yeah. to mess with your opponent, it is absolutely an answer for all of those. And that's one of the neat things about uh, Keyforge, with decks always being legal, it's up to later sets to produce cards that can counter powerful combos from earlier sets. And I think Infernus is really indicative of that. I think yeah, part I of, agree. Yeah, but I think part of the idea with the sets is that, like... The future sets, you if they don't want cards to be relevant, they just get rid of the card, right? They just phase it out, basically, and they let it go and stay in the set that it was in, like a rise. Like, you'll never see a rise <laughs> again. But, like, I think Infernus, in the, in the scope of Worlds Collide, has tons of um, value as well with the new mechanics that came in with Star Alliance and with um, 
Saurian and stuff. And I think that it's just, it, I think, it, like you said, like this was the, I think this is the card that single handedly put Dece into the fully control realm. Like before it was like control, but it could do other things and do other forms of disruption and stuff like that. But this is like, if there's a house that does control now, it's definitely Dece because we've had three sets. And then every set, their control, like the way they grip a game has gotten worse. Like it's gotten stronger and stronger. And it's like, though Restricted Guntus is kind of like now in a past thought, it's still around. Right. But like now we have EA on the fringes. We have Obsidian Forge. We have like all these ways to basically control and then find a way to burst win. Um, that makes decent worlds collide like super scary. Absolutely agreed. I got to talk about E on the fringes. Got to talk about it. One of my favorite cards in the entire game right now. And I have so many decks that I love using E with. Um, I think the thing about E on the fringes, and this is kind of a weird thing to say, considering how much sugar we've been talking about Dece. Um, there's a lot of lame Dece cards that I do not care about in Worlds Collide, despite loving playing Dece. I don't care about the Banes. Never find I get value out of them. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the creatures. Like, Buzzle's cool. Edorome, sometimes you might get value out of it. Um, I'm not a big fan of Lesser Oxtet. Lilithal's okay if you just need some, like, in-the-pinch kind of Amber Control. Malison can be okay. You know, whatever. But there is the part of me, whenever I have a handful of those and E on the fringes, that just goes, what What do I need to put these on the table for? What do I need to play these for? Just steal, 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 steal. And I love that it, you can, with the, the set uh, being arranged the way it has, with such heavy archiving, so many ways to put cards away for a rainy day, that it's possible to set up these very big E on the fringes plays. And they feel so good when you pull them off. And they also destroy mirrors, right? Like, instead of getting rid of your creatures, let's just get rid of our opponent's stuff. Or, you know, either that or you just continue to use them as a deck-thinning tool, which um, is something, again, that Dece does very well. So, yeah, the card is very powerful. And if you haven't played a double EE on the fringes deck, then you haven't been living. <laughs> it is extremely fun, although the ruling around you have to discard a card and then each one of them has to purge a card... So if you don't, if you're not playing in a mirror match, then you have to double up to get the double steal. Like it's a, it's a little bit finicky and tricky. Uh, Blake, is that an actual ruling? Well, yeah, because the the wording on the E on the fringes says uh, uh, during your turn after you discard a discard from your hand, you may purge a discard from a discard pile if you do steal one. And I think that you would have to do that for each of them in order for that. Like you don't have to discard twice, but I think you'd have to purge twice. I think I read that somewhere, but correct me if I'm wrong, listeners. Jupiter, have you heard that? Um, the way I take it is that each EA of the fringe, like when you when you discard like one card, you'd have to you have to take two cards out. Yeah, that's my thought. Each, each of them triggers for the discard, which is amazing. Yeah, like, yeah. like I said, I think that it basically in a mirror match, you just now you have you get you get to pick and choose how you thin the the graveyards, and if you're playing against somebody that has things that you don't want recurred or is trying to recur, you just destroy their graveyard. If not, it thins your deck out to where you're playing, you know, a 12 card deck at some point towards the end. So there's a lot of value in that, as we saw in Screaming Caves and decks and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Also, cannot stop without giving a big shout out to Harbinger of Doom. Um, obviously, a lot of the big board clear cards that we saw earlier in the game aren't necessarily present anymore. There's no unlock gateway. There's no gateway to disc. Key to disc is still around, which is really cool. But I love the idea of Harbinger of Doom because Harbinger is set up in such a way that it's dangerous to put it down on the table, but it creates total brinkmanship between players especially when you throw things like um, uh, Soul Snatcher into the mix, because then it can create these scenarios of who's going to be the one to pop 
my uh, harbinger of doom? Who's going to be the one who like, you know, it's it's there's so many different factors that you have to juggle with it. Do I kill it now before building up a board? Do I let a board happen and hope that I draw into my card that bounces it or gets rid of it without it going off? There's lots of different ways that you have to think about it. And that's my kind of key forge. I like a card that challenges both players that can backfire. But when you pull it off right, can have big advantages and big gains. Yeah, I agree with that. I also would give a shout out to Snag and Snaglet. Like um, those two together are really strong. And then Lord Invidious is probably the strongest of all the leaders, in my opinion. Blake, you're a big Lord Invidious guy. Do you wanna do you wanna say a few words on the Lord? Oh, he's so good. Like I, I honestly think like turn one Lord Invidious. Like if that's how you start off, you literally have just gotten in your opponent's head, and they no longer are playing Keyforge the way they want. If they don't have a direct removal right away. It's going to take them two turns to get rid of that, maybe even more. And it just completely derails any plan. Like talking about like what Jupiter said about getting in someone's head and and they're no longer playing their game. Like I think Lord Invidious is the epitome of that. And the fact that he's the leader of the house just is so appropriate to have all those things come along with it. Very true. Very true indeed. Um, Before we move on to the end of the show, any last thoughts about where you would like to see this house go in the future? Things you'd like to see in mass mutation? I personally think it's a a sinful thing. I don't know. (laughs) Any thoughts, Blake? Um, I haven't yet played a deck that has... uh, I've played some mass mutations with the print and play decks, but I have not played this yet. I played Shadows and Sanctum a lot and some Dinos and some Star Lines, but I have not got a chance to do this yet. So I don't really know, but I feel like their mass mutations really seems to be like they're, they really have this more like, this is the identity we want to move forward with. Like, we're, I think we're going to see more consistency with a lot of things now. Like, I feel the first two set, the first set was really like, get excited. Second set was, oh, we need to pull back. Third set is like, I think we hit our stride now. And uh, and then now we're going to start seeing this stride kind of just start moving forward. And we're going to start seeing kind of, I guess, the the way they want Keyforge to be. And we're going to see the way that it just is going to get consistently like, the game is being played in this manner. And I think that's what we're going to start having uh, for all the houses. But I feel with this, from what I've seen so far, it just has a perfected version of other things that have come before. Agreed. Agreed. Um, my biggest hope is that they get rid of Draining Touch because the Gruen hate on that card is disgusting. <laughs> Not down with it at all. Wow, fun discussion. We cannot end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one is called... Help, Help from Future from Self. Future Self. I've got the lesson for us this week. Um, I went through a period of Keyforge burnout um, over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, With everything that's going on in the world, I think it's slightly understandable that it might feel a little bit weird to be playing games. But also at the same time, there was something else at uh, play here, which is I realized um, I wasn't playing Keyforge because I wasn't having fun when I did. And part of the problem was that I wasn't engaging with the things that I really love in Keyford, which is the social aspect. Um, playing random games online with random players is fine if you want to test a deck, if you want to get reps in. But what really draws me to the game is the sense of community and the sense of playing against other human beings, having conversation, enjoying the interplay. Of course, that's a difficult thing to replicate in uh, on an online format, but 
it really is a thing I had to keep in mind. So what I've done is I've curtailed the amount of random games I'm just playing just to play, and I'm pushing more of my efforts towards arranging games with people I know, especially if there's a chat aspect so that we can have an actual conversation and it feels more like the kind of Keyforge that I actually enjoy playing and less like the kind of Keyforge that I was finding frustrating, difficult, unfun, pointless. So I guess that's my lesson. Amen. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean... <laughs> At this time, when when we're we're disconnected from the people we normally interact with, I think it's just better to uh, arrange games with people you know and and continue that interaction in even if it is in a uh, a remote way. Yeah, absolutely would, true. Yeah, I would say I would uh, agree with everything that you said as well because the social aspect of the game is the, is one of the things that drives Keyforge. The second is the competitive aspect, and nothing online right now is competitive because none of it is sanctioned. It's all people basically trying to keep the game alive and keep it breathing until we hopefully get a release of a sanctioned game by FFG. So um, without the social interaction and the social talking, like I do enjoy playing games with friends. Like if a friend hit me up and said, hey, let's play a game, I would definitely jump on Discord and play a game with them. I have no problem with that. But since the uh hiatus in gameplay i've basically you know been looking for something and i i've moved to gwent um and i've obviously been playing a lot of gwent because it is a competitive online thing and i have i'm i'm, I'm after something and that means something to me um versus just playing games for no reason right on jupiter where can they find you online um we're always at everything that i do is channeled through the www.unitedarchons.com um, the website is always updated. It has a lot of my school documentary type stuff, things that I've been doing there too. I've been kind of doing a real life, like, you know, isolation type line since I got off my gaming line. So like a lot of it sometimes touches in with the real world and just ideas about the coronavirus and isolation, how to stay healthy, um, keep your mental um, right and all that stuff. So, um, but I still, when I, when there's something in Keyforge to talk about, we, we do it. Like even like with me and Blake on the United Archons, we decided we're going to be more sporadic because there's just too many things. There's not enough things to talk about. And there's already a lot of shows that have been in, been going on longer than us. So we're going to keep it to like, when we have something to talk about or, or a person to talk to um, that would be relevant, that that's where we're going to hang out. So, um, so if you don't hear from us, it's not because we forgot you. We'll be back <laughs> full swing when we're back in full swing, but we're, we're just trying not to flood the market with um, things that are similar. Right on. I gotcha. You can, of course, find this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash HFFS podcast. You can find us on Twitter under the same handle. You can find me as Scuzzy Gruen on Kip and on TCO and uh, on, uh, I guess, uh, various uh, Discord servers, um, as well as on Twitter and Instagram. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight. That's always the best place to reach out and connect. And uh, I am doing YouTube stuff to hopefully uh, keep people entertained with some modicum of my Keyforge knowledge and aspirations. Right on. Jupiter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Would you grace us yeah, with thanks, your buddy. presence again sometime in the future? I you are you have an open uh, open invitation. Like anytime you need me, let me know. I, I would definitely come on. I am a huge fan of Help for Future Self. So I thank you for all the content you guys do put out. And obviously me and Blake have a good relationship and maybe we could grow one, a better one between us too. So. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. That's nice of you to say. Thank you so much. And until we come at you next time, stay fortunate.